We are back. Uh, it's been all over the news that uh, W. Mark Felt has come out of the closet and revealed at age 91 that he was the man in 1972 who was known as Deep Throat. It's been a great American political whodunit all these years. And um, to uh, talk to us today about that interesting revelation is William Turner. William Turner was a special agent with the FBI from 1951 to 1961 when he turned to investigative journalism. His work has appeared in The Nation, Playboy, New West, The Progressive, and Scanlon's Monthly, among other publications. He was a senior editor at the legendary Ramparts magazine. His many books include Hoover's FBI, The Police Establishment, The Ten Second Jailbreak, Deadly Secrets, The CIA Mafia War Against Castro, and most recently, Rearview Mirror, looking back at the FBI, the CIA, and other tales. It is a uh, truly remarkable tale that in 1961, uh, William Turner, as a, as a field agent of the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, went up against its all-powerful head, J. Edgar Hoover, a man who ruled the FBI um, uh, as a bit of a tyrant. J. Edgar Hoover outlasted eight U.S. presidents and uh, had, a, had a mass of files on just about everybody that made him a uh, truly a political force to be reckoned with. Uh, uh, William Turner's David versus Goliath triumph is a remarkable story in itself, uh, one we should probably do a whole separate show on. But instead today we will talk a bit about uh, the mo- this most interesting development regarding Deep Throat. William Turner, welcome back to Radio Parallax. I'm really keen to figure out how you sleuth this one out. Well, he fit the profile, let me put it that way. I knew Mark Felt from the FBI when I was uh, transferred to the Seattle office in the mid-1950s. He was an applicant desk supervisor up there, which means that he was in charge of agents uh, doing background checks on... uh, applicants for sensitive sensitive government jobs and uh, Mark was a very nice guy Uh, he was very pleasant and he was very competent he was a supervisor I would say he was in his early 40s then the buzz among the agents was that uh, you know stay away because he's ambitious and he wants to go places and so you don't want to get caught uh, he was an Orthodox Hoover fan, and uh, so the agents gave him a wide berth. Meaning that if something went wrong, it wasn't going to be Mark Felt who was going to be pinned for it. That's right. Okay. The, the, the Hoover School. The Hoover School. Up, up Periscope, submarines. So during the 60s then, I guess he did have quite a meteoric climb in the agency, and by the time of J. Edgar Hoover's death in 1972... Well, my understanding is he was, in essence, the acting FBI director. That's correct. Uh, Hoover died in May of 1972, and the Watergate burglary was in June of the same year, only a couple of months later. And uh, W. Mark felt Mark was in charge of the investigation of Watergate. He was, in effect, the number two man in the FBI, and he was in charge of the Watergate investigation. So he was in a position to know. Following the uh, the coverage on, on CNN's been spending quite a bit of time on this on this because of the mystery aspect of this. Um, they've mentioned that um, uh, well on the website 
for, for the Washington Post, Bob Woodward has confirmed your suspicions, in essence, that uh, there was part of, the, part of the aspect of the Deep Throat character was some retribution, that he was seeking to get even. Right, like in the Herb Cain column, he wanted Hoover's job. Right. And what happened was, uh, Doug, is he was so ambitious to get ahead in the FBI and be appointed the new director of the FBI. Uh, Nixon didn't want an insider, but Mark didn't know that. He was pushing to be appointed permanent director. And with that in mind, he set up contacts within the um, Washington newspaper community. He had... uh, contact with reporters on the Washington Post and the Washington Star uh, at that time, all, all in the interest of forwarding his own ambitions to become the permanent FBI director. He had a motive there. The family is now saying he's an American hero because he uh, stopped the Nixon administration from blocking the FBI investigation, which was one of his aims, but he certainly was ambitious to become in his own right the director of the FBI. Now, William Ruckelshaus, who was the caretaker FBI director after Hoover died, appointed by Nixon, Ruckelshaus recognized that the ambitions of Mark Felt, and he forced him to retire because he found out that Mark Felt was in contact with these newspapers and leaking information he shouldn't. But, but Bill, the, the art of leaking to the press was something that Hoover himself had, had gotten to a fine art, had he not? Well, Hoover, of course, uh, through Deke DeLoach, his uh, director of, assistant director in charge of public relations, uh, Deke DeLoach uh, had good contacts with uh, the newspapers, and he was leaking stuff uh, Hoover wanted to be leaked. But Mark was doing it on his own, to forward his own ambitions. Um, th- there was there seemed to be some some shock on the part of people discussing this on CNN that you know why why would an FBI man have ruined his career or risk ruining his career by talking to the press? But uh, your point would be that's actually a very good thing to do if you're if you're ambitious. That's right. He was leaking information that would make him look good and uh, force Nixon to appoint him as the uh, next uh, permanent director of the FBI. And after he was forced out by Ruckel's house, uh, then he had a retribution motive in mind. Now, John Dean was openly wondering about whether uh, if, if, if um, well, he, he questioned the fact that, for example, if it's, uh, if it's Mark Felt, how could it be that when he spoke to Woodward in, uh, he said, in November of 73, he told him that there were erasures on the White House tapes, and he was asking the question, how could, how could Felt have known that if he was already out of the FBI by then? Well, you leave the FBI, in the, but you have intimate contacts uh, at headquarters. He had Felt loyalists tell him that, who were still in place in the hierarchy of the FBI. Since he was directing the operation looking into it, I guess he would have known all of his underlings would have still been, in effect, still been on the job. Right. Okay. People are confused about Watergate. I think everyone's confused about Watergate even three decades later. Is there a possible 50-word summary of now in in the wake of this latest revelation, how we can summarize what went on that day in 1972? Because we've got the White House, the CIA, the FBI, and the press all mixed up in this. It goes back to Nixon's paranoia over the possibility that George McGovern might win in, in the presidential election of that year. Uh, even though he was assured by 
called him in in his uh, Prussian palace guard that uh, there's no chance he could lose. But Nixon, being paranoid, wanted to pull out all the stops to find out anything that would smear uh, McGovern, even directly or indirectly. And Frank Sturgis, whom I interviewed after he got out of jail, he was one of the Watergate burglars, right. told me that what he was told by E. Howard Hunt uh, was that they were to look for any kind of records breaking into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters that would tie in Castro, uh, who supposedly was making financial contributions uh, to the Democratic Party and McGovern in particular. Now, that would be a good smear if it could be proven, but it was built on a falsehood. There was no Castro money. Your take is that was just a cover story they were giving to the, the Cubans to make them enthusiastic about the burglary. Absolutely. I mean, if there's anything that would infuriate the Cubans, it would be Castro giving money to McGovern. <laughs> I've read a lot of books on this, and I've, I can't figure out what's going on. All I can conclude is, in my, in, in my mind, Nixon's White House did not order that burglary, and there seems to be something going on between the intelligence agencies playing some turf war over that. Is that, is that your take on it? Yes. understand McCord never said what was going on. He clammed up, and he never did give a hint as to what the, and I think McCord is the guy with the secret. Well, James McCord, people don't realize, was quite a big fish over at the CIA. For him to have been involved in a burglary in, in, in a, uh, the Democratic offices was really odd. He'd also been an FBI agent, and he was a CIA agent, and then he worked for CREEP, the Committee to Re-elect the President, and uh, set up the uh, secret organization, the Plumbers. Now, J. Edgar Hoover rejected the Houston plan, which was to uh, do dirty tricks against the, uh, re against the Democratic candidate and the Democratic Party and to conduct uh, surreptitious espionage against them. And the interesting part about it is, is Hoover had given up the idea of black bag jobs, burglaries, because he got burnt by me. I was a black bag guy for the FBI, and in 1966, I wrote an article in Ramparts exposing the FBI's black bag operations. With that, Hoover in August, this, the article came out in June and August, he issued a command not to indulge in any more black bag jobs because they were illegal. But of course, they continued until his death. Right, and the interesting part about it is that uh, Mark Felt and a guy by the name of Miller, when the weather underground became a problem, uh, they went over Hoover's head and ordered burglaries of the weather underground's relatives. So uh, they were caught and prosecuted, and when Ronald Reagan pardoned Mark Felt, uh, Nixon sent Felt a case of champagne, <laughs> which is ironic in the extreme since Mark had done him in. <laughs> Bill, you're the only one that's picked up on that little episode so far. Okay. We are speaking with William Turner, 
an ex-FBI uh, agent and longtime investigative journalist. He's His numerous books uh, we've recommended to you in the past. We will give you a list and put on the website another list uh, for you. The, the latest one, I believe, Bill, was Rearview Mirror, looking back at the FBI, the CIA, and other tales. Right. Okay. Uh, yes, you, you should have this uh, on, on your home shelf if you have any interest in what's happened in politics in the last uh, 30 years in this country. Uh, a lot of people are saying that the deep throat is not honorable. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy, you'd expect him to say that. Charles Colson, you might expect him to say that. But even David Gergen, uh, a reporter, was saying, well, there's nothing honorable about being deep throat. And I, I want your comment on, on Gergen's remark. I li- I'd like to hear your comment on this. Gergen was quoted in, in the year 2000 as saying, deep throat, if he had some data, he should have gone to the Justice Department with it, not leaked it to the press. How, do you, you resp- How do you respond to that? Gergen is too knowledgeable about how Washington works to make a stupid statement like that. Well, I mean, you don't go to the Justice Department when it's controlled by the enemy. Well, John John Mitchell's Justice Department. John Mitchell was Nixon's uh, law partner, right? Who had had just died. But if if there'd been something before that, it would have been a futile to have gone to to the FBI director as well. Look, I'm I'm certain in my own mind that uh, Mark had multiple motives. Okay. And which came first, uh, the chicken or the egg, I'm not sure. But he was motivated by Nixon's pressure to block the FBI investigation of Watergate, which he felt uh, was important to the country to reveal because of the criminality involved. But I can't get away from the fact that he also was very ambitious and wanted to be the new FBI director and he pulled out all the surreptitious stops to achieve that end. Do you think he would have had a shot in his own mind, perhaps looking at it, maybe still getting back in as director in, in, in late 73 or early 74 when Watergate was tearing the country apart? Well, there was a, the, the Nixon t- White House tapes recently revealed that in October of 1972, Nixon was talking to Haldeman, and they're discussing the leak and uh, they hauled him and says it's probably Mark Felt, and they get into a discussion of the fact that Mark Felt is Jewish, and Nixon says, uh, I'd never appoint a Jew. Wow. That was a recent Watergate, uh, Watergate tape release? Yeah. Bill, you amaze me. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think as an investigative journalist about the fact that, uh, that this, this felt revelation has come out in, of all places, Vanity Fair magazine, which has done some excellent, excellent work? Vanity Fair has done some excellent work. Their investigative reporting on leading up to the elections of the last election, the presidential election, was great. They did some really stuff. If every American had read Vanity Fair, Nixon would, or Nixon, I guess, <laughs> a Freudian slip there. <laughs> Bush would not be president. I, I'm with you. We, we, we actually took some of those articles and talked about them on the ramp up, up, up to the election. Uh, speak, speaking of investigative journalists, um, Judith Miller seems to have been, gotten, get, been given a pass for her egregious reporting and leaking of things about uh, Iraq that were not true. From a journalistic standpoint, what, what do you think of Judith Miller? Well, she obviously was uh, uh, a uh, advocate of the war in Iraq, and she wasn't objective in her reporting. She leaned towards justifying it and came up with a lot of information that uh, that really didn't uh, hold water. 
So I think she was motivated uh, by ideology rather than an objective journalist reporter. Well, I, I, I would agree. Um, only got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask you a slightly different subject since you've written extensively about uh, what happened and what still is going on between the United States uh, and Cuba. Uh, Luis Posada is, um, is mentioned extensively in, in Rearview Mirror, the little episode of him and Dr. Orlando Bosch blowing up a Cubana Airlines jetliner. Um, I didn't know this till I, I reread your book, that Bosch is now ensconced in Miami as, a, as an honored citizen, thanks to Jeb Bush, whereas I guess Posada presumed he might do the same, and he's been getting um, a bit of a ruder reception. How do you well, put- Bosch, yeah, we're talking about the 34 people that lost their lives in the bombing of the Cubana airliner in uh, 1974. And what few people know is that Posada tried to assassinate Henry Kissinger on a visit to Costa Rica. The Costa Ricans arrested him, and the State Department didn't want him back, uh-huh. didn't want to extradite him, so uh, he was free to move about the continent with his nefarious schemes, and he cost the life of an Italian tourist in uh, Havana a few years ago. And the interesting part about it is that Bosch is now kind of a, the Rembrandt of little Havana, uh, doing paintings and selling them to tourists. <laughs> and he was in the Justice Department when he re-entered the country illegally after being convicted of shooting the Palancia of a Polish freighter in 1966. Uh, when he re-entered the country after the uh, bombing of the Cubana airliner, the Justice Department said he was incorrigible and should be deported. Enter Jeb Bush and Alenia, the representative from Congress Mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, Miami district, and uh, they convinced George H.W. Bush, who was then president, to give sanctuary uh, to Bosch. So... The, the Bushes are very much involved on the side of terrorists when you consider that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It's easy to imagine that Luis Posada might have thought that uh, he might be treated just as well if he snuck into Florida since Bosch was... Uh, I'm sure that was his mindset. What do you think they're going to do with him? Well, they got a quandary. Venezuela wants him back to try him, and the latest is the State Department needs more information of the facts of the case before they can extradite him. And I don't think they have any intention of extraditing him. But they got a quandary as to what to do with him. If they let him into the United States, they're allowing a terrorist to enter. Well, they sure are. We'll follow that story as it develops. Bill Turner, we appreciate very much your coming back on our third appearance on our show. We, we must have you back sooner. No problem, Doug, any time. I always enjoy being on your show. You're a very good interviewer. Well, well, thanks so much for that and for speaking to the audience here at UC Davis. And, and I really, I, I just can't stress enough how, what, what a goldmine your books are of, of information, of all sorts of details, things that you investigated firsthand. Thanks for the compliment. All right, Bill. Okay, Doug. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. I got to tell you, I I am tickled to be holding in my hand uh, a copy of uh, Rearview Mirror and looking in the the leaf on the back, it lists all these uh, things, these quite interesting uh, parts of the book. And uh, 
Uh, the last one on the bottom in boldface type says uh, uh, the identity of Watergate's deep throat. Yes, that is in the book, and yes, he got it right long before everyone else. Let me quote in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, from Herb Kane, reporting on February 13, 1978, quote, ex-FBIer Bill Turner is certain that Watergate's deep throat was former assistant FBI director W. Mark Felt, who wanted Hoover's job. That, folks, is a hell of a bit of investigative journalism. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back with uh, some science and some miscellaneous stuff, miscellaneous good stuff in segment number three. Stay tuned.